When you think about the book of Genesis and you think about what its name actually means, because it it literally means beginnings, it is God's word to us about what he did when we were not yet there. It contains history, it contains genealogies, it it contains what the Hebrews would call the toldath, uh, that which is a, a record of the early civilizations here on this earth. And tonight we get to probably the most important personal passage as far as as humankind is concerned uh, thus far in the book of Genesis. Because it's the record of the doctrine of original sin. And we speak of that doctrine, it's a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul, as he wrote to the church that was at Rome, reminded us of this Romans road. For the wages of sin is death. We're going to find why that is tonight. We're going to find that because of Adam's sin... Every subsequent person born after Adam, though God never intended for mankind to choose to sin, he had to give mankind that choice. That choice had to be real. If that choice was not real, then we cannot fully choose to love God. There must be something to choose if the choice is genuine. So he creates Adam and Eve as free moral agents. He does not make them sin, but he does not provide them with a, such an idyllic environment that there's nothing to choose. And so he gives them the opportunity. And as is true with every single human being born after Adam and Eve have been created, the first two created, everyone else born through the natural process of human reproduction and conception. Every one of us have inherited that same nature that Adam and Eve are now going to bring into this world, and it will be attributed to Adam. Adam is going to be the disobedient one. Eve will be partially deceived and partially willfully ignorant of the commands of the Lord, but Adam, in full disobedience... Complete rebellion is going to engage in sin. I want to draw your attention to last week because it's very important that you distinguish between temptation and sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. There's temptation all over this world. You can be tempted without sinning. Because if God forced Adam and Eve to be tempted and sin then he's the author of sin, he's the author of evil. He simply gave opportunity to validate the choice. The choice was Adam and Eve's. So temptation, which always comes from the enemy, uh, stimulating either that which is already within us, our human drives, those things which are appealing to us, and we're going to see 17 things in a handful of verses tonight that come into this world as a direct result 
of this one event. And you're going to see every last one of them alive and well, probably in your own life, but certainly in this world. And so as we dig in tonight, let's pray. Let's thank the Lord for his wonderful word. And let's ask him to bless our time. Father, we thank you that you recorded this. Lord, that you likely caused Adam and Eve to remember it verbatim, passing it along through those generations, and eventually uh, those words being given to Moses and Moses writing them down. Lord, your Holy Spirit preserving all of it, causing it to be remembered precisely. Lord, allowing us to know exactly what happened on that fateful day. And so we pray that you would instruct us from heaven. Uh, give us clear understanding of the pathways, Lord, uh, that exist in our lives. Lord, those areas and what will befall us if we choose to do what you tell us not to do. Lord, disobedience has a price. We pray there'd be no one in this room that would choose us. God, that we would live our lives holy and acceptable to you. Desiring to be pleasing in your sight. And so, God, we bless you. Ask now that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, sin enters the world. So I said probably the most uh, important words that really practically applied uh, we've seen thus far. We've seen the creation account. We know what God's done up to this point. But here we find the first interactions between God and and man on a personal level. And it's not good. So I said previously, it's, again, you, you must constantly remind yourself, because if you don't believe that God created an Adam, Adam and Eve as free moral agents, as people who have free will, had the capacity to do anything they wanted to do, and they chose wrongly, then you make God the author of sin. You make God the author of evil. If God simply set up circumstances that forced Adam and Eve to be in a position where they could do nothing other than sin, then God, in fact, made them sin. That's not the record that we find in Scripture. It begins to unveil itself for us tonight. There wasn't the slightest reason that Adam should sin that Adam had any external stimuli himself to sin beyond his own personal choice. That's why that verse in James is so important to us. Let no one say when he sins, he sins of God. Because God cannot be tempted by sin, nor does he tempt anyone to sin. When you sin, it's on you. And we're going to see every flavor of justification that we have in our world today right here in the garden. So you're not the first. You won't be the last. Uh, in fact, this is the, the tragic path that sin takes through our world to this day. We do have that inherited sin nature. And because the, the death sentence, if you will, that's imposed here on Adam... Uh, because exactly as Romans says, they're in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, because it says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world. Now read that very carefully. If you believe the Romans road for salvation, 
then you must also believe the Romans road with regard to sin. Because you can't have it both ways. You either believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or you do not believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and thereby there are a bunch of people who either are sinless to this day or have never sinned, or that there are people born who have the capacity to be outside of what Scripture says, which is the result of sin is death. But because it's universally true, Paul goes on to write there to Roman, the Roman church, that through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. So if you've ever wanted to answer that question, why do people die? Because we're sinners. It's a very simple answer. The world doesn't like it. The world likes to try and pretend that if we were just morally better, if we took better care of our bodies, uh, if somehow we could fight off the effects of aging, uh, that we would live forever. In fact, the original design of God, that is likely the truth. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, then we would be living indefinitely. But because they sinned, Every last one of us is going to croak. So don't beat Adam and Eve up when you get to heaven. Cut them a little slack. Be nice to them. Because they will be there because they were forgiven. They were covered. Their, their sins were covered. Innocent blood was shed for them. And I believe they died in faith believing the Messiah would come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 reminds us, that in Adam all die. So because every last one of us are related to Adam and Eve, every last one of us will eventually die. Some of us sooner rather than later. But the condition of man is this. When you take your first breath, you've taken the first step towards your last breath. Any doctor in here will tell you that once you take your first one, you're on your way to your last one. Now it may be a long time, you, you might live 100 plus years. It may take a real long time. But you're not going to beat out what the Bible plainly says is in Adam all die. So we see death come into the world. Each person from there on out living under that divine judgment, not only because of Adam's sin, but because of your own deliberate disobedience. In other words, you were born with the capacity, and once you acted on it, and once you understood what it was, then that transference became yours instantaneously. In Adam, all die. The crazy thing is, if you've ever watched people try and free themselves from the, the bondage to evil thinking, disobedience, the Eightfold Path of, of Buddhism. Uh, as you think on what that, denying your flesh, living a monastic life, being a vegetarian, ultimately being a vegan, you know, not killing anything, believing that all life is sacred, including bugs. They just busted a whole group of Buddhist monks in Thailand that were raising opium poppies and selling heroin. 
Because there's no amount of cleaning up who you are, save the blood of Jesus Christ, that's going to erase that curse. Because in Adam all die. You may get real close, but you're going to be just about that much short every time. Let's pick up tonight, verse 6, Genesis chapter 3. And I want you to try and keep track here yourself as we read through these verses. But I think I can point out to you 17 things that we now have at work in our world that have their origins right here, and they are not good. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, anybody ever coveted anything? You ever wanted stuff that wasn't yours? Liars. Of course you have. Driving around on PV Drive and about halfway around. There's a house up there. God, you need to give me that house. I like that view. We do. We're never satisfied. You ever notice that? And that little dissatisfaction that starts out as just a little dissatisfaction pretty soon becomes, how come they have it? You'll get what I'm saying as we go through this. Pleasant to the eyes. A tree desirable to make one wise. Anybody ever want to be smarter than you currently are? Amen. Hallelujah. And she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Anybody ever try and cover your sin? Anybody ever tell just a little tiny bit of the untruth because you don't want anybody thinking that you're a sinner? She did something wrong. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This may actually be the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Because it really paints a picture that there was a point in time when mankind literally communed with God on a daily basis. We, we call this in theologic terms a theophany. It's God meeting literally with man. It's an appearance of God. Adam and Eve literally had coffee every day with Jesus. They met with the Lord Most High. They, they hung out with God himself. And they traded that for the bite of a stupid apple. Something that they did not know, they traded for something they did know. Something that they knew was good was cast off for a possibility of something that might be different. Maybe better, maybe worse, they didn't know. They traded the known for the unknown. But Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
The reason that's noted is because that's not what used to happen. They used to be looking for God. They were looking for God. They would get up in the morning and they would say to each other, Honey, it's time to meet with the Lord. Let's go find him. He's in the garden someplace walking. And now all of a sudden, they're not only not looking for God, they are actively trying to hide from him. Does that sound familiar to anyone who's ever sinned willingly? Does, does it sound like your life when you've sinned and you know you've sinned and all of a sudden you don't want anything to do with church? You don't want anything to do with your Bible. You don't want anything to do with other Christians. You are hiding from God. It all started here. They went from meeting with God face to face to hiding from God. That's why I said it may be the saddest verse in all of the Bible. It's certainly up there in the top ten. And then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And I have to admit, I, I sometimes snicker at these verses. You can imagine Almighty God, who knows exactly what's happened, because he's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He knows everything, can do anything, and he's everywhere. That's why David could write, if I descend into the depths of hell, or I rise to the heights of heaven, thou art there. God already knew, so he's not asking for information in this passage. He's not going, man, I, I lost Adam and Eve. They were here just a little bit ago. They ditched me. That's not what's going on. But what is going on is he's giving them a chance to come clean. He's saying, Adam, where are you? He's literally asking, Adam, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? What have you done? He's giving Adam an opportunity to say, I'm sorry. I messed up. And Adam speaks back and he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And again, this is sad. From communion and fellowship and love and joy to I'm afraid of you. Brothers and sisters, that's what sin will do in your life. And don't you ever think it won't. Sin will separate you from God. And all of a sudden you'll be afraid of the one who loves you. You'll be scared of the one who wants to touch your life with beauty and wholeness. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, they did get the knowledge 
of good and evil. They could now lay it alongside. And the tragic part is, is they now knew evil. They knew sin. They had, if you will, now carnal knowledge. They had understanding they were never intended to have because they went after it. Can I tell you, this is a tragic and and very oft-repeated thing that I hear in my office. I, I, I went someplace I shouldn't go. I did something I shouldn't do. I now know things I shouldn't know. I've done things that I shouldn't have done. And I'm ashamed. And I'm afraid God's mad at me. It's still the same. And it's still up to you as to whether you want to have fellowship with God. You see, because in obedience you'll have his blessings. But in disobedience you will have fear and you will have shame and you will have disappointment. So the choice really is yours as a believer. Whether you want to walk with God still in the cool of the day or whether you want him to come looking for you, asking you questions, Jeff, what are you doing? Why are you over there? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? You see, because God's going to try and get you to confess too because in confessing your sin, 1 John 1, 9 says that he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse and to get you back on the right path, to get you back into fellowship. But the choice is yours. It was Adam and Eve's and it's still ours tonight. And he said, who told you that you were naked? You see, God didn't tell them that. God created them perfect, and he declared that everything was very good. He didn't say, man, don't look at your wife. Don't you look at your, don't you look at your husband. Everything was very good, including their nakedness. But now, all of a sudden, it's no longer good. They're ashamed. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Again, does God need the answer? Does God not know what Adam's done? What Eve's done? The answer is, of course he knows what they've done. Though he's not asking him, it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just stumped. No, he knew. And God knows every single thing that you and I and every last person that has ever lived has ever done. Any of you ever tried to bargain with God? Make deals with him? Try and convince him that, well, it isn't actually sin. I have this lousy attitude because people are mean, God. I'm not really being mean to them. I'm giving them righteous indignation. Never do that? 
Try and convince God that you're actually not at fault. Here it comes. And then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. That's another way of saying, it wasn't me. I'm not responsible. Brunhilde of Eden did this. The wicked witch of the tree. You can almost hear him starting, you know, it's like, next time do better, God. Justification of sin, blame shifting have been around a very long time. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman, not wanting to be outdone by Adam, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Tragic consequences of making bad choices. And I pray that you fall in love with this passage because it is unbelievably helpful in keeping us out of trouble. You can take these verses and apply them to almost any situation and ask yourself a whole bunch of questions. And we'll look at them a little bit, uh, one at a time. When, you, when you're dealing in, in a chemical sense, and being as it's been one of those days, when you're putting together chemicals into compounds, there are chemicals that are precursor chemicals to those chemical compounds. In other words, you take a handful of things and assemble them together, and they become something else. Here we have 17 precursors to a life of misery. 17 things that you can combine together in a lot of different combinations to make some really horrible things come into your life. I'll just list them for you and then we'll break them down. You can see the lust there. You can see the coveting. You can see the deceiving, the enabling other people to sin, the encouraging other people to compromise. You can see what it costs when you lose your innocence, when you won't stay innocent in your mind, when you got to be in the know about things that you shouldn't know. You can see the shame. You can see guilt. You can see fear. You can see cover-ups. You can see justification. You can see lying. You can see the shame of nudity when that nudity is not in its proper place. You can see the shame of sexuality when sexuality is not in its proper place. This is the birth of situational ethics. What was right for me at the time. You can see what it costs you to lose fellowship with God. You can see what happens when you start to blame shift. You can see the fruit of animosity. 
And you can see what happens when you begin to justify evil. All those things happen in those handful of verses. And they're still with us today. If ever there was a a place that you could point to the Bible and say, God nailed it. This This is like a who's who of what's what with regard to human interaction and behavior. Pretty much tells you what's wrong with the world, actually. First notice in verse 6, what I like to call the, the three steps, if you will, the, these precursors, these things that, that happen when you don't deal with temptation while it's still in your mind. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, and again, remember, you can watch all these things online. You can listen to them. You can download all the PowerPoint slides. When you don't deal with temptation when it's still here, It's going to go from your head to your heart to your hands. It's going to go from you thinking about it to you loving it to you doing it. That's the cycle that sin takes in your life when you allow temptation to dwell and to take root. That's why we must resist the devil in order for him to flee. If you camp out with him, you invite him over for dinner... If you hang out with him and party with the enemy, you're setting yourself up to have temptation, which is not inherently sin, turn into the sin of either omission or commission. You are either going to actively engage in something you know you shouldn't, or you're going to fail to do that which you know you should do. That's the two ways that we sin actively. But there's a process. There's three steps And I want you to see him here. Notice the three steps of how temptation turns into sin. The first thing, it appeals to your physical body. It appeals to your bodily appetites. It's something that actually inherent within you is not necessarily bad. It's okay that you're hungry. It keeps you alive. Amen? Can you imagine if you were walking around and you didn't have any drive for hunger and you just dropped over dead because you didn't eat? So God didn't give you hunger so that you would sin. He gave you hunger so that you could enjoy the things that he's put on this earth and so that you could be nourished. So there's three steps. And the first one is it appeals to your bodily appetite. The second one, notice it was pleasant to the eyes. It not only appealed to that which is good, that which is actually necessary, you need to eat, amen? You need to take in about 1,500 calories or so a day for the average person. If you don't do that, then eventually your little mitochondrial motors that are spinning and tossing off electrons and doing all their work, providing energy for your cells, they're going to croak, they're going to die, and you're going to die along with it. So you do need to eat. But here's what happens. It doesn't just appeal to that. It's like one thing looks better than another thing. Can I tell you that prime rib definitely looks better than a Big Mac? Just saying. 
You see, there are things that look better than other things. You have to win the battle for things that look better because you know what? A Maserati looks better than a Corolla. And a full bank account looks better than... Honey, what does NSF mean? No, it looks better on the screen when there's a lot of zeros, right? It's pleasant to the eyes. It's your ascetic senses. It's your emotions. It makes you feel good about it. You think about it and you go, that would be better than this. And the third step is there's a desire for knowledge to know something that perhaps other people don't know and to then be able to use it in the right way, which is the definition of wisdom. You see, if I know something you don't know, and I can use it correctly, that makes me better than you in the world's eyes. Can I tell you that Satan still works exactly this way in our world? Exactly this way. It appeals to your bodily appetites, it appeals to your eyes, and it appeals to, in essence, your esteem of self, your spirit, your body, and your mind. Which, by the way, perfectly parallels 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For all that is of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. So the enemy has not changed his tactics in any way, shape, or form for thousands of years. He's still doing the same thing, in essence, the same way. He paints it a little different, colors it a little different, makes it smell a little different, look a little different, but it's still going after the same parts of you. It's going after your bodily appetites, it's going after your eyes, and it's going after, in essence, the spirit of who you are, your mind, your soul, and those things where you connect with God, your spirit. Satan's still using the same James 3 outline, earthly, sensual, and devilish. He tries to get you to change the glory of God, as Paul would write to the church at Rome, into the corruptible image of things of this earth. He wants you to trade fellowship and walking with God for a new house, a new spouse, maybe a fuller bank account. He wants to try and get you to compromise, to begin to do these very things that are laid out here. He's still working the same way. He's still using that outline. It's the reason that Jesus came into this world, by the way. That's what Jesus came to solve. You see, we had a problem we couldn't take care of ourselves. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. But he hath made us alive, amen? Amen. That's what's happened to us as believers. We were dead because through Adam all sinned. But Christ came and when you have believed on his name, you now have been made alive. And by the way, just so you don't miss it, 
Jesus himself was tempted in exactly these three ways. So when the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in all points as you are, we are, mankind is, and yet without sin, all you got to do is turn to the Gospel of Luke, and there it is. The same three areas. He was tempted in his body, he was tempted in his mind, and he was tempted in his spirit. Led to the wilderness. Forty days. No food, he's hungry. There in verses 3 and 4 of Luke 4, his physical appetite. What does Satan do? Command these stones to be turned to bread. You're the son of God, you can do that? What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He responded with the word. And he does the same for the other two. Satan tries to appeal to that emotional desire. Look, the whole world will worship you. Just bow down to me. Jesus responds again with the word. Recognition. Spiritual eminence. Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Throw yourself off of here. The angels will give, you can just ask them. They'll give charge over you. Physically, mentally, spiritually, Jesus is tempted and yet is without sin. Each time responds with the word, no, has not God said. Notice what the problem was with Adam and Eve. God said, and they didn't believe him. God gave them one command. No, you're just messing with us. They believed the enemy. They believed the lie. As I said this morning, men love the darkness. That's the problem. That's what happens. We start to listen a little bit. We start to be tempted. We start to have our physical body just say, you know, well, that would be better. Our minds, well, you know, that'd be awesome. Our spirit, well, you know, I'm not going to die if I do this. You know, this whole holy living thing. I mean, come on, Pastor Jeff, take it easy on the holy living thing. Couldn't I just dip myself in the sludge of this earth and still squeeze into heaven? It's not really what your Bible says. Supposed to love what God loves and hate what he hates. And when you're a child of God, that's what happens. And when God asks you questions, where are you, Jeff? And you go, man, I blew it. God, I'm right over here. You see, that's responding the right way. We have to remind ourselves that the Lord overcame. We're overcomers. And and if Satan had the un... Think about it. Satan had the unmitigated gall to attempt to tempt the Lord Jesus himself. What chance do you think that you have that you're going to go temptation-free on this earth? 
If you went after Jesus, you can be really sure he's coming after you. Because remember, if he can deceive you enough to get you to not trust Jesus, then he's won. Don't let him do it. Yield to the power that we have in Christ Jesus. Adam and Eve do set the table for the rest of us. And I want you to to look at the five things that verse 6 brings to bear. And notice as as you look at verse 6, it's fairly simple. You can see them. So when the woman saw the tree and it was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes. You can see the lusting. You can see the coveting. Check out the deceiving. She took it and gave it to her husband. And he. it's like, well, it's actually good. You can see the enabling of other people to sin. Oh, honey, it's awesome. I mean, you can't believe I, I, my, my mind is open right now. I mean, I don't know what this fruit is, but I'm feeling really good about the whole thing. You ever notice how when people are buried in sin, one of the things they try and do is get other people to join them? You, you watch television for about 35 seconds, you're going to see that. Oh, you know, if you just drink this and drink that and wear this and wear that and do this and do that, then everybody's going to love you. Man, you just drink the right beer and you're going to have underwear models coming over to your house. It's what television tells you. You know how many men go that direction? They buy that lie. They believe that deception. They think, I'm going to get smarter if I just drink a half gallon of this? You want to know what alcohol is? It's stupid in a bottle. That's what it is. I don't know about you, but I need all the brain cells I got. You see, the enemy deceives them. No, you're going to be more fun. Matter of fact, life itself will be more fun if you just drink this. All of your cares. You'll be forever on a beach if you just drink Coronas. You will be on a beach, but it'll be because you don't have a place to live. And you can't pay your dental bills because you didn't go to the dentist because you spent it all on Coronas. And yeah, I'm picking on it a little bit because I've watched people go that way. Believe that lie, believe that deception. Ah, honey, we can't afford a new couch. I got friends coming over. We'll sit on the floor. It's deception. Enabling other people. You can see it all in verse 6. Encouraging other people to join you in your misery. Look what Eve does. Ah, come on, honey. It's not that bad. Very sad. We should not 
join them. Look at verse 7. What happens there? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. You ever wondered why most people don't walk around with no clothes on? Because this shame exists with us today. You don't believe it? Give you a little test here. How much money do you think was spent on undergarments in the United States of America last year? $13.9 billion. That's a lot of undies. Why? Because the shame of nakedness has come upon us. It wasn't God's plan. Lost innocence. They knew things they weren't supposed to know. You want to know why pornography is so damaging? Because you see things you shouldn't see and you know things you should not know. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They saw things that God never intended them to see. And they understood it from a place that they never were supposed to understand it. That lost innocence, you can't get it back. Moms and dads, let me speak to you for a minute. That's the reason you want to protect your kids. That's the reason you don't want them seeing things that they shouldn't see because you can't erase their minds. Now, praise God, the Lord can do a work, but it's tough. I want to help make right choices. The guilt that came with this, can you imagine? Look what they gave up. How, how miserable do you imagine they were? They realized that they had one-on-one fellowship with the creator of the universe, and it was gone in an instant. A moment's sin. How many people wake up the day after and say, Oh, dear God, what have I done? What have I done? And then you fear the consequences. You imagine what Adam and Eve are thinking. Well, what's going to happen? He told us not to do this, and we did it. In fear. They weren't supposed to have fear. Save the fear of the Lord, which is the reverence of God. One verse for terrible consequences that all of us are susceptible to. Instead of the garments of salvation, they had the filthy rags of their own sin. Instead of complete openness with the Lord, now they had areas of their life that were closed off. Can you imagine what God thought? They're sewing together garments. You know, they, they make the world's first hula skirt. Put some leaves together and they're, they're wearing it. God's probably just thinking, oh, no, you didn't. 
He knew what they did. Can you imagine how that broke God's heart? It breaks God's heart when we sin. It breaks his heart. Because he doesn't want what's going to happen to us. That's not what he wants for us. He wants to have close, intimate communion with you. And the best way to do that is to live your life in a way that's pleasing to him, which is as sinless as you can get. People sometimes come to me, well, you know, we should stop talking about being sinless. That would be like you saying, you know, son, I hope you're an utter failure in life. What one of you in here is going to tell your children that? What one of you is going to walk up to your own children and go, I hope you end up pushing a shopping cart for a living. I hope you're homeless before you're 12. You're not going to do that. That's why God wants us to live our lives as sinlessly as possible. Because he wants us to be our very best, which includes having the deepest, most intimate fellowship with him, walking with him in the cool of the day. That's what Adam and Eve forfeited. And the only way you get that experience is by living your life in a way that's pleasing to him. Any other way, you will not have his best. That's not saying he doesn't love you. It's not saying he's going to cast you. You're still going to be his kid. But you want God to walk with you. You don't want him to have to call you out of the trees. Amen? What comes out of verses 8 through 10? I told you there's a bunch here. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And I want you to really look at that. Because the book of Deuteronomy says to the children of Israel, Thou hast led me out by thy right hand, and by thy presence did thou lead me. The experience of the children of Israel was the literal presence of God. He dwelt with them. He he resided between the cherubim. When they moved the tent of the tabernacle, and, and they took the Ark of the Covenant the literal presence of the Lord traveled with them. It was a sign to them. Adam and Eve actually got to meet with God. But in this case, they said, well, that's really not that important to us. We'll trade it for an apple or whatever the fruit was. And they hid amongst the trees of the garden. The very thing that was supposed to be their food became their hiding place. How many people hide themselves in food? How many people because they're ashamed? How many people because they're afraid? How many people because they're not doing what God's asked them to do have turned to hiding themselves in the very thing that God intended for them as food? He said, I've given you every tree to eat of. It's my firm belief that virtually every tree in the garden had some kind of fruit on it. It was like a major fruit salad. They just walked around like, hey, honey, I'm hungry. Let's try this one. But they were just told this one tree. Knowledge you couldn't eat. Don't eat of that one because in the moment you eat of it, you're going to die. 
And then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And it's almost like, Adam, where are you? Not looking for a location. Where are you at, Adam? Where's your head? Where's your heart? What have you done with your hands? Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see it? You see the cover-up? You see the lying? You see the shame about something you shouldn't be ashamed of? You see the situational ethics playing themselves out? You see the lost fellowship with God? What was before a normal day for them now becomes something that can't even happen. They had personal fellowship. We don't know how long that happened. We, we don't, we're not told how long it was before Adam and Eve sinned. We do not know. But I don't think it was very long before God confronted them on it because he wanted fellowship restored with them. But we know what it did. They went from hanging out with the Lord to hiding from the Lord. They went from having complete freedom and being ashamed of nothing. Nothing. Anybody in here want to live a life that has zero shame? Oh, man. Wouldn't that be awesome? Never be ashamed of another thing that you thought now think about it for a second. Zero shame. They didn't have any. Because they were disobedient, they now have shame. Disobedience to the things of the Lord will always bring you shame. We live in a world where we have tried to factor out all shame. And I want to be really specific about what I'm going to say next. I'm not saying we should shame people, but it is an absolutely wonderful thing that people are ashamed of their sin, ashamed of their works, ashamed of the things that we do. Not shaming the person, but the actions you are supposed to be embarrassed by what you have done that does not meet the standards of a child of God. It's one of the tools the Lord uses to cause us to straighten up. You're not supposed to be okay with your sin. That's what, well, you know, somebody else. That's exactly what goes on here. It's blame shifting. Adam and Eve blame each other in essence. And the result of that is they lost fellowship with the Lord. And just so you know, everybody's going to wear clothes in heaven. I want to square that away. Robes of righteousness, to be very specific, But God wants to have a clear relationship with you. A clean relationship with you. A holy relationship with you. The last couple of verses here. What happens? Check it out. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, do you see the blame shifting? It's not my fault. 
God, if you'd have just picked a better, if you'd have made someone more holy, I cannot even tell you how many husbands or wives have come in and and sat down for counsel. Well, you know, if my husband wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't have done that. Or if my wife hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done that. And it just like, it just is a plague to our society. It's like nobody takes responsibility for anything anymore. It's always someone else's fault. Began in the garden. She gave me of the tree and I ate. And just to be fair, God gives her an opportunity to clear the whole thing up. I actually like that, you know, because God doesn't hold you accountable for other people's sin. He holds them accountable for their sin. Let's her clear up her own uh, deception here. <laughs> and so Eve, well, it wasn't me either. The serpent did it. Look at the animosity. Can you imagine? Because it seems that all three of them are in the garden at this time. Adam and Eve are together. They've made their little, they, they opened their first garment business. AdamandEveClothing.com Completely organic and sustainable. No animals were harmed in the production of these garments. They've sewn it, they've wrapped themselves, but now they're going to fight over who's the most wrong. You know, when you blame somebody else and they blame you, I can guarantee your relationship's not going to get better. You said, well, you know, it was you. No, it was you. No, it was you. No, it was you. All that happens is you break fellowship. So they've lost fellowship with God and they've lost fellowship with each other. That deep, intimate fellowship that they had. You see, that's what happens when husbands and wives sin and they drag each other into that sin. That sin becomes a wedge between them and they start trying to figure out who caused the sin in the first place and then whose responsibility is it. And before you know it, they have animosity because they're in essence blaming each other for their own faults. Never works. It's evil. And bring the worship team back up. Now some of the pastors have come forward. Now in hearing this passage, you can take it one of two ways. And I pray you'll take it the latter of these two. You can get all on your own case. And you go, man, I got a lot of work to do. Or you can realize that this is exactly why Jesus came. Because we're sinners and we need a Savior. And so whatever your today was, that does not need to be your tomorrow. So whatever part of all these 17 things you might be struggling with tonight, you do not have to struggle with them tomorrow. You don't even have to struggle with them today. You can leave them at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I need help with blame shifting. I need help with justification of sin. I need help with my thought life. I need, to, I need help with my animosity. I, I need help with the coveting. I need help with the lusting. I need help, God. 
because I want to have fellowship with you. The good news is, that's exactly what God wants. There's a wonderful passage that's found in the 59th chapter of the book of Isaiah. You just mark it, you can look at it later. But the first three verses give us a picture, and it's a negative picture, but it's also a positive picture. And it says there, your sins have separated you from God so that he does not hear. In other words, he's not hearing you. Your prayer life is damaged because of sin. But because of what 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive it and then cleanse it. So whatever it is, you don't have to be under the bondage of it ever again. As the pastors come forward, if you've got something that you've been dragging around and it's broken your fellowship with God, or it's broken your fellowship with your spouse, or it's broken your fellowship with your friends, or it's broken your fellowship with your family, or it has broken your fellowship with someone in the church, all you need to do is ask God to forgive it. And he'll cleanse it. And he'll begin to work on the things that need to change, both you and whoever it is that you have that thing with. But if you keep it, then you keep the shame and you keep the guilt and you keep the animosity and you keep the blame shifting and you keep the justification of those things that you've been doing. You can keep what you currently have. Or you can say, God, I need a new start. I want to start fresh. I want to start over. And for some people, it's really over. It's such a mess, it needs a redo. God wants fellowship with you. He wants to walk with you in the cool of the day. Don't deny yourself that. And don't deny him that. It breaks his heart. And so if that's you and you need prayer... So pastors are waiting and up front. Come and let them pray for you. Pray with them. Leave it at the foot of the cross and don't ever pick it up again. Father, thank you tonight that it's so very true that you delight to be present with us. Lord, that your goal, your design, your desire is to have deep fellowship. Lord, to walk with us in the cool of every day. Lord, not in the heat of the moment, but in the, in the cool of your blessing, the joy of your presence. And so we pray that for those tonight maybe hurting, maybe struggling, Lord, that testimony of their life needs a little change. They need your glory in their lives. They need your truth applied. Would you work in them to will and to do what is your good pleasure tonight? 
We're grateful that one day there's going to be no more curse. Your word declares that. But right now this world's a mess and we need your help. Need your help to get through it. And so help us, Lord. Bless us, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.